Hello, and welcome to Bird of the Week. It's a podcast about birds, released on a non-weekly basis. Episode 23, the Murray-Darling Basin Bird Breeding Bonanza. Hear that awful cacophony. That, my friend, is the sound of a mass ibis breeding colony. To many people, that is just a squawking mess, but to some, it is a beautiful sound that hasn't been heard in nearly a decade. And today, we're going to find out why it's so important. Oh, oh, <clears throat> um, okay, we can cut it now. We can cut the mess. We can cut the noise. All right, cut the noise. So welcome back to another dose of your non-weekly bird. Today, we're doing something a little different. I'm going to take you on a romp to the Murray-Darling Basin, where, over the last 12 months, there has been a veritable bird breeding bonanza. We love a bonanza here, especially one that means there are more birds. So come with me now as we find out more. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I'm sure the question foremost in your mind is what the heck is the Murray-Darling Basin? That's a great question. First, many Australians will be aware of the Murray and the Darling Rivers. They are two of the country's biggest rivers. Yeah, by international standards, they ain't that big. But here in Australia, big rivers. First, the Murray is Australia's longest river. It's over 2,000 kilometres long, starting life high in the Australian Alps. The Australian Alps, just like the European Alps, only, you know, half the size. These moderately mighty mountains are nestled in the southeastern corner of the Australian mainland, more or less between the Canberra, New South Wales and Victorian borders. From there, the Murray flows down to form the border between New South Wales and Victoria. It then meanders in a northwestern direction across the interior of the country as it makes its way to South Australia. And yes, I realise I just said it flowed in a northwestern direction to reach South Australia. Compasses be crazy, don't worry about it. The Murray ends at Lake Alexandria, a coastal freshwater lake which itself connects to a series of lagoons and marshlands. The river only has a small mouth which connects to the ocean, That's the Southern Ocean in the Great Australian Bight for those geography people playing at home. Now, we'll touch on the water flow issues in a moment, but in recent years we've been obliged to operate dredging machines to keep the mouth open and prevent it from silting up. It's a problem which arises because there isn't enough water flowing out of the mouth. If the water isn't flowing fast enough, sand, silt and other grit can settle on the river's bed and build up until eventually the whole mouth is full of sand. It closes and no water gets through at all. I don't know if you've ever had a mouth full of sand, but this is a problem. If the mouth were to close, the lagoons and marshlands would be deprived of a fresh rotation of water, which would cause them to warm up, stagnate, and kill everything that lives there, which would be bad. So we dredge the mouth, removing sand to keep it open and flowing. We'll circle back to this point, the who's, the what's, the where's, the when's, and the why's, a little later. 
But right now, we need to find out what the Darling River is. So now, Darling, we come to the Darling River. Darling. This river is a touch smaller, coming in a bit under 1,500 kilometres. It cuts clean through the outback of New South Wales, with its many tributaries beginning in southern Queensland and western New South Wales. It then flows through the gently sloping plains of the outback until it reaches the Victorian border, where it joins the Murray. From there, the pair flow together as the Murray-Darling River. Now, the Darling River is not a healthy river, which is a point of ongoing political, agricultural, and environmental controversy. The main problem is an over-allocation of water resources for agricultural use. Australia is a dry continent. Unfortunately, you need water to grow stuff. Australia wants to grow stuff, so we use its water. I suppose we've been maybe a bit enthusiastic about how much of the Darling's water we use in our pursuit of growing stuff. And look, when the river stops flowing during times of drought, that's probably a sign you've taken too much water. But there are other issues that affect its health, such as climate change and agricultural runoff like pesticides and fertilisers getting into the river. You get too many nutrients in the river and that encourages algae to grow, which burns through the oxygen in the water, and then everything ends up dead via suffocation. It's a bad time. And quite famously, or infamously, there were significant fish die-offs in the Menindee Lakes in early 2019 when about a million fish died. The cause was linked primarily to too much water being taken from the river during a time of drought, and then fertiliser, algae, not good. So, yep, there have been long-standing issues concerning the health of the river system, trying to figure out how much water the farmers can get, how much water the environment can get, and trying to strike a balance between the two. And then in the middle you've got the poor old government trying to make everyone happy and pissing everyone off in the process. But these are big questions that fall outside the scope of this podcast. Wait, what was this podcast about again? Oh yeah, birds! I don't think we've mentioned one yet. Maybe we should get onto that. Oh wait, hold that thought. We haven't covered the basin itself yet. Pause on the birds, we will get to the birds. But first, the basin. So now we know what and where the Murray-Darling River is, it means we can get to its basin. But what is a river basin? It's easy to understand. Essentially, if water falls on the ground and it ends up in the river, you're in its basin. If it ends up in some other river, you're in a different basin. Basically, it's the area of land that feeds water into the river system. And the Murray-Darling Basin is huge. Big River has a big basin. It covers a full seventh, a seventh of the Australian landmass. Anything on the east coast west of the Great Dividing Range, and that's the mountain range where the Alps are, and you're basically in the basin. Now, even though the basin itself is vast, it doesn't receive a lot of rain. On an average year, there will be about 24,000 gigalitres that flow through its system, which might seem like a lot. It's about 50 Sydney Harbours worth of water. I... I don't know how Sydney Harbour became the base unit for vast amounts of water. I still really don't know how much water that is. It's about 50 Sydney Harbours, which might sound like a lot of water. But if you compare the Murray-Darling to the Mississippi, which sees some 530,000 gigalitres, you can start to understand it is puny by comparison. The Mississippi has over 20 times the volume of water, so like 
a thousand Sydney harbours. That's all to say Australia is a dry continent. Hence, while we have issues with how much water we can take out of the system, yeah, there isn't a lot to start off with. But even so, the basin serves as an important habitat for a wide range of waterfowl and waders that you normally wouldn't expect to find so far inland. And now, finally, I think we're ready to meet some birds. Naturally, there are many birds that call the basin home. We got a ton of ibis, pelicans, spoonbills, ducks, bittens, cormorants, egrets, and herons, throw in a grebe or two and a couple of swans, and you got a lot of birds. All of them rely on a healthy river system to survive, and especially to breed and raise the next generation of flappers. Let's take a moment to look at a couple of these birds. First, there is no more misunderstood bird in Australian culture than the white ibis. To most Australians, these birds are known simply as bin chickens. There's even a song about it. Link in the description. Maybe we'll save a deep dive for these dumpster diving birds for another day, but the ibis has done a successful job of adapting to urban settings, mainly by eating trash. But in their natural environment, they would never be caught with their beak in a bin. They are a long-legged white bird built for wading in shallow water. They have a bare black head, kind of like a vulture, and their most distinctive feature is their long, downward-curved beak, which they use to probe for creatures like crayfish and mussels beneath the water's surface. And here's something else. The white ibis isn't the only bin chicken cruising the basin. In far greater numbers are their more handsome cousins, the straw-necked and glossy ibises. Ibisai. Ibi. Wait, what is the plural for ibis? Oh, it's just ibises. Go figure. Well, the straw-necked ibis in particular possesses stunning iridescent plumes along with long straw-coloured feathers on its neck, as the name suggests. Unlike their white friend, the straw-necked and glossy have not moved to city living and the daily commute. These birds have maintained their rural roots and enjoy stalking grassy fields and pastures for grasshoppers, insects, and other pests. They were so good at pest eradication that they were once known as farmers' friends, a far cry from the reviled bin chicken of today. Another bird of the basin that is a real favourite of mine is the royal spoonbill. The spoonbill and the ibis don't look all that different, you know, if you ignore their faces. And in fact, they belong to the same broad family of birds, the Chionrithidae. No idea if I said that right, let me try that one again. Three Chionrithidae. Three Chionrithidae. Three Chionrithidae. That could be it. Look, it's probably one of those pronunciations. Ah, uh, look, we'll throw the real pronunciation in the edit later. Can we do that? Yeah, I'm pretty sure we can do that. Either way, the thing that really differentiates these two birds is their feeding strategy. Funnily enough, the spoonbill has a bill that is shaped like a spoon. Whereas the ibis uses its long, slender, curved beak to probe things, the spoonbill is more of a filter feeder. Spoonbills wade through shallow water, kicking up dirt and grit with their feet. They then sweep their beak through the water and pick up any tiny creatures that have been disturbed. Their bills are surprisingly sensitive, almost like having a finger on the end of your face. They have a series of papillae, which are tiny nodules on the inside of their beak that are sensitive to vibrations. This allows them to detect small movements in the water, allowing them to zero in on their prey even when there's low light or murky conditions. You might be wondering what makes the spoonbill royal. 
and that would be their crest. During the breeding season, both males and females grow long white plumes up to 20 centimeters long atop their head. When doing their courtship rituals, they flare them back to reveal a crown of pink skin. And if that isn't royal, I don't know what is. Unlike some of the other birds we will meet today, spoonbills, strictly speaking, don't nest in large colonies. Instead, they seek out other birds that do, like ibis, and then nest in between the other birds. So, they do kinda nest in a colony, it just isn't theirs. They colonize the colony, you could say. Pelicans are also a common resident of the basin. Again, the pelican is closely related to both the ibis and spoonbill, and again, they have a beak unlike any of their cousins. But I think I need to be straight up with you. Pelicans are hectic birds. First, they are just huge. They are some of the largest, heaviest birds still capable of getting their big butts into the air. They have big wingspans and powerful muscles to propel them off the ground. Everything about the pelican is big, including their beak. The Australian pelican famously has the longest bill of any bird. One particularly well-endowed individual had a pecker over 50 centimetres long, but their beak isn't any ordinary beak. While most birds are made out of a tough keratin, the pelican's beak is fleshy fleshy and flappy flappy, mainly because the famous pouch is actually skin that hangs off the lower mandible. It has a technical name, the pelican's pouch is called a gula, which sounds kinda like gulag, and considering the pelican's nature is appropriately onomous sounding. You see, pelicans like to eat. They're usually pack hunters. They form into groups and drive fish into shallow water, where they scoop them up into their pouch, drain out the water, and then swallow them whole. That in itself sounds perfectly reasonable, but a pelican isn't an exclusive pescatarian. They're opportunistic feeders and will eat anything that'll fit down their gullet. They'll even eat other birds, like seagulls and ducks. If you want a real horror show, Google Pelican Eats Pigeon. It is not a good time for the pigeon. I've even heard folklore stories of pelicans that have eaten dogs. Never seen a video of that though. And like, I'm sure it would be a little dog, right? Like a chihuahua or something? So do they even count as dogs? Ah, who can say. But it's an important reminder that you should never cross a pelican because if they're good, they would totally eat you. Now the thing that all of these birds have in common is water. They all need water to successfully hunt, eat, and raise their young, as do the many other birds that call the basin home. Swans, grebes, herons, egrets, ducks. If they don't have water, they're gonna have a bad time. Many of them require water to even make a nest in the first place. Grebes, for example, build a floating nest out of aquatic vegetation. It's mighty hard to build a floating nest if you don't have any water. And other birds, like the intermediate heron, build their nests in trees above flooded ground. Again, kinda need water for that. But you're probably wondering what makes the heron intermediate. Well, it's smaller than a great heron, and bigger than a little heron. I wish I was joking, but that's literally why it's called intermediate. It's, well, it's, it's intermediate. Anyway, by now you may have guessed from our intro, where we spoke about the whole drought, irrigation, fish, die-off business, that in recent years the birds of the basin have been struggling. Nothing in nature exists in a vacuum. You can't have an unhealthy river system and expect the birds to be flourishing regardless. 
Since the early 2000s, when Australia went through a particularly bad drought, the populations of waterbirds that call the basin home have been in decline. Year on year, we've seen reduced numbers, and it's largely been a bad news story. But this year, we've finally seen a reverse in the trend. Heavy rain led to conditions that favour colonial bird breeding events. The aforementioned bird breeding bonanza! Now, some of the birds we've mentioned will not breed unless conditions are just right to support a massive colony. These are rare. The last one that happened at this scale was in 2011-2012, a decade ago. So what are the conditions you need for a mass breeding event? Well, first you need water. A lot of water. And in the last 12 months, with thanks to a La Nina event, Australia has had a rather wetter time than normal, to put it mildly. Look, we've had a flood or two that has been rather devastating for a few towns. But bad news for small towns upstream means good news for marshlands downstream. The floods have sent a surge of water through the basin, which has set up the conditions for a colonial breeding event. Wetlands and marshes that have stood dry for years are now brimming with fresh water. And like moths to a flame, or birds to a marshland, the birds have indeed come in their thousands. From every corner of the country, they have descended into a few favoured nesting sites around the lakes and wetlands along the river's course. The phenomenon of how birds know a body of water has appeared inland hundreds of kilometres away from where they're hanging out is still a puzzling question, because these birds don't live out back all the time. Most of the time they're on the coast. Flooding in Australia doesn't happen in predictable cycles either, like it does in other places where there are reliable monsoons. Our flooding is intermediate, the bodies of water it forms ephemeral. No doubt the birds can sense... something. Best guesses are it has something to do with a change in air pressure or some other climactic indicator. Whoa, buddy, did you feel that two pascal drop in pressure that happened at 3am last night? Yeah, I bet that means in about a week there'll be a butt-ton of water about 300 kilometres north of here. Ooh, I guarantee it. Whether that's the case or not, there is something they can sense, and when they feel it, it tells them there is a whole heck of water somewhere else. Some other people posit they can sense thunder from a distance, and when there's enough of it coming from the right direction, they know the marshes will soon be flooding. Whatever the reason, they always know to turn up, and turn up they do from all corners of the country. But for this many birds to gather in their tens of thousands at the same time all to breed, it means there needs to be enough food to feed thousands of chicks. The great hope this year is because it has been so wet, the vegetation has a time to recover from the previous dry conditions. That in turn leads to an insect breeding boom, which leads to a fish breeding boom. And these are two things that are ideal baby bird food. And then bada bing bada boom, you've got a baby bird breeding boom on your hands too. It's a whole circle of life thing. When you get back to back wet years as well, it means the stores of bird food can quickly stockpile and better fuel these breeding events. So yes, a lot of things have to align for a mass breeding event to work. And this year, we have had a good dumping of rain. And it's meant we've just had the most successful breeding event in some 20 years. Government monitoring of the area has seen tens of thousands of pelicans, ibis of various species, egrets, swans, and other rare birds 
gathering together in areas where they haven't been seen in years, and getting on with the business of making more birds. For many of these species, large-scale colonial nesting events are critical for their survival. Some species only live for 10 to 20 years, and because they only favour colonial breeding events, we need them to happen so they get half a chance to raise the next generation before they shuffle off this mortal coil. So this is very good news, because events like this are important for rebuilding flagging populations. The real trick though, the real trick, is how we maintain the river's health at all times, so that we can weather the lean, dry years and be ready to take advantage of the wet ones. This is where organisations like the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder comes in. That's the CEWH to their friends. They're a body of the Australian Federal Government. The CEWH, with advice from other stakeholders in the area, releases water for the environment to help keep native plants healthy and support feeding and breeding of birds, but also fish, frogs, and other animals that rely on the river. And spoiler alert, we people are also an animal that relies on the river being healthy for our own needs. Now, the primary function of the CEWH is to deliver water for the environment when and where it's most needed. And of course, that's an easy sentence to say. I lied, actually took me two takes to get that one out. But in principle, it's an easy sentence to say, but a lot harder to know exactly what is the right time and place to release and protect water. And that's why a whole lot of science type people have been out on the ground monitoring the birds, working out what part of the river system, wetlands and lakes they're using, what they're using it for, and when they're using it. These days we can use GPS satellite transmitters to track the movements of water birds around the basin, which is great because sometimes it's hard to keep 24-7 eyeballs on these guys when they're flip-flapping all over the place. And information is like gold. If we know where the birds are hanging out and what they're doing, then we have a better idea of where the water needs to be. Because timing with these breeding events is everything. It isn't enough for the water to arrive to draw the birds in. The water has to be in the right place, in the right volume, at the right time. Sometimes these birds can be a bit persnickety. For example, if water levels drop too quickly while the birds are still nesting, they could abandon their eggs. If the water levels are too high, it could flood the nest. Environmental flows into the system need to be managed carefully to ensure they have time for the nestlings to feed and fledge. This kind of information is also helping us to better manage these environments during times of drought. We can understand what water needs to stay in the system during the lean times to guarantee that when the next boom season arrives, the river is primed to support it. Following this logic, we can understand how important it is to keep our habitats like reed beds and wetlands surviving during droughts until the boom times return, and we can understand how important it is to keep drought refuge waterholes and river pools in survival mode until things get better. There are no easy solutions to how we manage our waterways. As easy as it would be to say, well, let's just step back and give all the water to the river, I do enjoy eating from time to time, and I am rather fond of wearing clothes. Our farmlands are always going to be with us, and they serve a vital function to keep our society ticking over, what with the food and all. And while new agricultural practices can come along that create better water efficiency and generate less harmful runoff, 
we will still be left to negotiate the problem of a changing climate anyway. While it may not be the most sexy thing, the best we can do at the moment is monitor the river, wetlands and floodplains, monitor the birds, better understand what they need for their survival, and then do our best to balance the scales between what water our farmlands need and what water our environment needs. That is the mission of the CEWH, and in that mission it can always use a helping hand. If you live in the Murray-Darling Basin and have witnessed a colonial bird breeding event, you can get in touch with your local engagement officer. I'll drop contact information in the show notes. Let them know what you've seen and where and when you've seen it. In the fight to create an environment that can support our water birds, knowledge is power. And hey, if you'd like to stay abreast of what's happening in the basin, I've also dropped a link to their social feed where they post regular updates on how the birds are doing. But in the meantime, I think we can all be happy knowing that right now there are literally over a hundred thousand new teenage birds flapping their way around the Murray-Darling Basin. These mass breeding events are so important for rebuilding populations and ensuring these species are able to survive the lean years until the rains return. Thank you for joining me on this exploration of the Murray-Darling Basin. I hope you enjoyed it. Next time we are going to have a change of pace and take a gander at a misunderstood family of birds, the vultures. Just what is going on with these circling omens of doom? Join me next time and we'll find out more. Now if you still want some more bird action, then I've got some good news. Our bonus podcast called What's Up With That Bird's Name has just come out, and this week it is all about a parrot that is one promotion away from being a popemobile, the Cardinal Lorry. What's up with that bird's name? Well, for the low price of just $2 a month, you can find out all about it. All you need to do is swing over to Patreon forward slash Bird of the Week, or one word, link in the description to find out more. And if you're feeling especially generous and want to make a larger contribution, then you too can get a special thank you from me in the show, just like my good friends Jill Chalker, Jody Little, Debbie Hode, Innes of Senny Illustrations, and Richard Clark, the Minty Fresh. And as always, if you'd like to receive a bird in your inbox each week, then drop me a line at weekly.bird at outlook.com, and I'll add you to the mailing list where you'll get a new bird lovingly delivered to you for free each and every week. And I mean, hey, who doesn't want more birds in their inbox? At any rate, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in again next time. Until then, this has been Bird of the Week. day. Three thrinathorskinathornery on a third day. Look, I'm sure it's not a real word. <laughs>